Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every other Friday to explore a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. God. Sarah, RJ, I'm so happy to see you today. How are the two of you doing? That sounds sarcastic. <laughs> <laughs> it was meant with sincerity. It was meant with, was with a, a little with, bit of spunk and you're some not just you know, blowing real... smoke, DZ. <laughs> Well, you know me. <laughs> How are you doing, Sarah? What's up? Good. Yeah. You know, we're uh, we're in the throes of like headed towards spring. January is a tough month in like our specific Episcopal denomination. So yeah, just annual meeting and all that, you know, Josh Budgets. is like calling people right and left to get them to volunteer for things, but whatever. It's January. Rutger. We're doing good. Um, you know, just getting back into the swing of things after uh, December and January. Um, took my son on a uh, college visit this past weekend with a friend of his, which was kind of kind of fun, kind of crazy. Um, actually visited my alma mater, um, which caused me to consider, you know, whether my 22-year-old self, uh, how my 22-year-old self would have felt about my 42-year-old self and all the things that I um, thought were important back then and prioritized and kind of where I am now. So, Well, speaking of parents and children, the very first article this week is a doozy and it was sent to us on facebook actually but i'm glad it was sent to us uh written by harriet brown in the washington post i cut off all contact with my mother it made my life much better that is the um headline a little bit of baity but here we go this is what she writes she says 10 years ago after decades of bitter fights and lukewarm reconciliations i finally got the courage to cut off my mother completely. Our relationship brought me nothing but nuclear level angst. Even after even the smallest interaction, I'd fall through a wormhole into utter self-loathing. Deciding to estrange from my mother was not an easy decision. For me, as for most people, it took an exchange so toxic, so far outside the boundaries of what's acceptable that something snapped inside me. My older daughter had been very sick with anorexia and my mother emailed me to say her illness was my fault and I should be grateful she was telling me this because it showed she loved me. But I was done with her. Well-meaning family members called to warn that someday I'd regret cutting the tie. You only get one mother, they said. What if she dies and you're still estranged? How will you feel? My mother died three years after our official estrangement and my only regret is that I didn't do it earlier. Much, much earlier. The cultural narrative around estrangement is that it's a problem that needs to be solved. We see and feel the supremacy of the genetically connected family in a thousand ways throughout childhood. By the time we're adults, it literally goes without saying. And so there are websites and books and articles meant to help families reconcile with advice on everything from how to phrase an apology to how to take legal action. For some families, that helps. But for the rest of us, that pressure to get back together makes everything worse. For us, estrangement isn't a problem. It's a solution to a problem, a response to an otherwise unsolvable dilemma. It's a last resort when you've tried everything else over and over when you no longer trust the relationship. Now, she goes on from there, but this is a um, 
quite a bold, uh, you know, but I think worthy perspective on familial estrangement. We've, <clears throat> excuse me, we've talked about it a little bit before. Remember, I remember Sarah, you 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 mentioning it in relation to uh, stuff that's gone on with uh, in your extended family, but. Um, it's it, it, familial estrangement uh, is something I confront so much more often than even you'd think, especially in a church life. You you find so many parents who don't ever hear from their children, and so many children who want to have nothing to do with their parents, siblings that are out of the picture. And you know, it can kind of sound like hyperbole sometimes, and then you dig deeper and you you hear about it. And um, you know, Carrie Willard, uh, one of our wonderful writers, she she's written about this before because her she and her sister are estranged. Her sister's estranged from her whole family. And she said, you know, of everything I've ever written, that's the number one thing people ask me to talk about. Because I think it's not something we really do have vocabulary for. And Brian wrote something about it today on the website that discusses a few of the ways that Christians maybe put band-aids over this. But um, I don't have a solution to something that maybe doesn't need a solution, but I want to hear uh, from you guys what, what, what bells went off internally or externally. So much. Um, I think what you said about estranged family members and Carrie Willard is so true. I just have noticed over the years almost especially when you encounter a family where, let's say, the children are adults and they seem to have it all together, almost invariably, there's some sister or brother who lives in Alaska or Seattle or, you know, somewhere far, or New York City or somewhere far away that, like, nobody talks to, um, that I think estrangement is, and this is what the article says, is a lot more common than anyone really wants to admit or talk about. Um, with regard to parents, uh, you know, I have a good friend who just lost his father, uh, and it's been tough, but it's mainly been tough um, for him because of kind of what he didn't get from his father or, or, or the conversations they didn't get to have, or, you know, they weren't really estranged, but it was a tense relationship. And I think my friend was hoping at some point to have some conversations about it being tough and about his childhood and his father's fatherhood and all that sort of stuff. But that's, it's not gonna, um, it's not gonna happen now. And I don't know, I've just thought about, you know, being a father myself and especially of three sons, and thinking about my own father and my own experience, um, you know, I have done a little bit of teaching around this, but not a lot. But I, I kind of have this—I don't know—the the, the pet theory or the the teaching structure I'm working on, which I think is true, is that I do think. I mean, I don't know about sons and daughter, daughters and mothers or daughters and fathers, because I'm a man and I have boys and I have all bro all brothers and whatever. But I do kind of think that um, what sons need to hear from their fathers is four things. Um, I love you, I'm proud of you, I'm here for you, and I don't say most importantly, but maybe most importantly, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think I'm sorry is the one that's hardest to speak when you're a parent. You know, um, I was watching Incredibles 2 again recently, which is an amazing movie, um, you know, where Mr. Incredible is kind of talking to his daughter and basically says, you know, he's sorry for, for his failures as a father. And I felt myself welling up, you know, that whenever I, whenever I sort of see a father figure apologizing to a child for their inability to be what they know they ought to be, I ab react all over the place, you know, both in terms of my experience as a son, but also in terms of my experience as a father. Because at the end of the day, I know 
my best is just never going to be good enough. It just won't because I'm a person and I'm going to sort of um, fail my children in certain ways. Um, and I probably overdo it, but you know, my, my grown, my teenage boys would tell me, would tell you, I said to them over and over again, Hey, if I ever need to apologize for anything, you just let me know. And I'll be more than happy to do that <laughs> You know, to the boy where it's a little bit it's like, yes, dad, we know, geez, go away. Uh, like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'll go away. Uh, but yeah, that's kind of my, my theory around parenthood and childhood right now. So I thought this was a powerful article and, and sad. Yeah. You, you, you know, we we're great believers in reconciliation, but at the same time, we believe that as Paul says, you know, that God is reconciling himself to the world in Christ Jesus. And that's sort of a divine work that sometimes we just may not be able to pull off, you know, and the best thing we can do for our own mental health is to, um, separate at least for a time to get some perspective and, you know, let's face it, that's why a lot of kids move away from their parents, you know, and don't, maybe don't visit or talk that often. They need the space. This is always a difficult thing for me to think about. I think the culture of my family is very strong. I think the culture of Southern families in particular is very strong. And so um, I actually have two instances of this in my family of um, a an adult child saying that they don't want to be in communication with the parents anymore. And I have to say, I've kind of come around to it. I mean, initially it was very like, this is not what we do. And this is, I mean, I loved Brian Gerald's very honest take on this for us on the mockingbird website. Cause I definitely, it's like, no, but what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to figure this out and you're supposed to get in therapy and you're supposed to work hard enough to make this possible and what I've learned is that like, sometimes it just isn't possible. And I, um, have to say, um, this, this sort of original piece in the Washington post highlights that really hard truth that I have yet to meet anyone who has done this, that regrets it. Um, mm -hmm. I have yet to meet any adult child who has done this, who's regretted it. Um, which is, which is a very hard thing to, to say out loud, but it's true. Last night we were watching, um, you know, we watch a ton of stand up comedy and we were watching um, Neil Brennan's uh, stand up and he did the. Have you guys seen this? It's called Three Mics. No. So, literally, so one mic is for like one liners um, on one side and the other mic is for stand up on the other side and the mic in the middle is called Emotional. And I don't love some of the ways that as someone who loves stand-up comedy, some of the ways that stand-up comedy has become like, um, basically you might as well be on a therapist couch. <laughs> um, cause it's not funny. Um, but his is worth it. Like his is his emotional stuff is so, um, I mean, he talks about his depression. It's so not postured in a lot of ways, which I appreciated. And so truly painful. And he talks about, he was like the youngest of 10, which he goes on to say is like way too many kids to have in a family. And like, you know, talks about his father was a, a physically abusive, emotionally abusive alcoholic and kind of takes you through this, this journey of what, what that was like for him and how, you know, that only exacerbated mental illness and for him personally. And so anyway, he, he gets to this point at which his father is dying and he had written his dad an email months earlier and basically said, you know, this is this is everything you did that was wrong and, you know, sort of sought reconciliation. And his dad called him to his deathbed and said, you know, I'd written you out of the will. 
but I, but I, I, re- I want to write you back in the will. And so Neil, like his sister tells him to fly into Chicago and to see his dad. And she's like, dad really means it. We've got a lawyer coming tomorrow. And, um, anyway, Neil had to go do, you know, his work. So he goes to New York for work and his dad dies two days later. And then a couple weeks later in, you know, in his inbox, he gets his will, this will from his dad. And so it's like, you know, you can imagine 10 siblings, right? This goes on and on. So-and-so gets a 10th, so-and-so gets a 10th. And then it gets to Neil and it says, Neil gets nothing. And he said, I have a lot of money, right? I mean, the guy was a writer for Dave Chappelle. He's like, I have a lot of money. He's like, it's not like I need money. But he said, if my dad had been giving out blankets, I would have wanted one. And I was like, that is Mm. what this feels like. When you have this level of pain in your relationship with your parent, it's like, you just want a damn blanket. You know what I mean? Like, you just want him to show up in some small way and say, I want to take care of you and I love you and I'm sorry. And, um, I don't know. I, it was just, if, if you guys haven't seen it, I cannot recommend it enough because it was such a powerful testimony to what this feels like as, as a, as a kid of a parent who, you know, is really dysfunctional. Mm. You know, it brought to mind two different things for me, one, one of which is I did have a friend who would always go on and on about how much his, how terrible his parents were and they were fundamentalists and they were hateful and this and that and the other. And then I finally met the parents and when they were coming through town and they, um, I spent a significant amount of time with them, not enough to know them that well, but it was, it was so different than the picture that had been painted mm-hmm. that I felt a little bit that maybe his parents had become a prop in his story of... Uh, a glamorized version of kind of overcoming bad odds. Mm-hmm. Um, and then other people that knew him too. We, I ended up having coffee with another person that knew the person who was like, did you actually ever meet those people? Because they were the sweetest people I've ever met. And you're like, who knows what goes on behind closed doors? But I, I, I always get nervous whenever we're trying to find a justification or a, a way around forgiveness. And yet, then I also dealt with the same exact week, uh, a woman who was going to, uh, whose 97 year old mother was, was, she hadn't talked to and she, and for a long time. And she went down to go see as she, she had a heart attack and stuff. And she went down there and the woman was just spewing absolute bile and the cruelest things you can imagine to a really wonderful child that anyone would be so excited to, who's now in her sixties. And, um, to think that she felt totally that God had spared her actually in their estrangement from just more of this relentless sickness. Yep. So I don't know if there's a one size fits all. I get, I, I, like I said, I have, I, I feel both sides, but that's very interesting that we haven't met people that regret it, but especially mm-hmm. now as a parent though. Um, it's as, when you give, if, I think, think children love their parents enough they want the blanket enough to give them mm. a lot of chances actually to yeah. say, I'm sorry. And when you realize it's not only not the I'm sorry is not coming, but all that's coming is snatching more things away from you, then um, you know, it's it's one of those things like our friend, our uh the the prison chaplain that maybe mm, totally. your only hope is in heaven where you would see the redeemed version of this person and maybe get a totally. get a get a glimpse of that. So it's it's so common. I don't know. They, the, the article says that more than 10% of mothers are estranged from their children. And that, I mean, I'm sure that, or have one estranged child. And I'm sure that that number is much higher for fathers who seem to be absent, but that's still pretty high. 10%. That's a, that's a lot. It also, it made me think of um, Isaac and Jacob and Esau, hmm. you know, and how Isaac just so clearly 
you know, loved Esau and didn't love Jacob. And the pain of that was so intense that Jacob felt the need to steal the blessing. Mm. He, he needed his father's blessing so badly that he lied to his dad to get it. Uh, and then turns around and kind of, you know, commits the exact same sin with his own kids by loving Joseph more than he loves any of his brothers, um, which then, you know, means his brothers hate Joseph. And it's, it's just, it's, it's an old, old story, you know, of children needing their parents' blessing and not getting it. Mm-hmm. And the, 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 the terrible toll that that takes and the generational pain that that causes. Um, and I do think, one thing we can hope for as Christian parents is that we break the cycle, you know, that we, that we do our best to give our children to speak those words of grace and comfort and love and repentance to our children in a way that our parents didn't do to us. Um, that's certainly, uh, yeah, that's my hope. I, though just my closing thought about this is that we can, reconciliation is just, just like love and just like grace. It, it's something that we can, uh, laud and magnify and say is the absolute height of goodness. And yet um, it, it becomes the law. When I tell you, you have to sure. love someone or you have to forgive someone or you have to reconcile, it is no longer the, the gospels that you have been reconciled with, that you have been loved, that you have been treated graciously. And when she says the pressure to get back together makes everything worse, I mean, it's kind of like, that's why people sent this to, to us, I think, because it's like mockingbird alarm bells go off when you try to when you, when ding, you turn ding, 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 gospel ding. into law, it uh, it actually has the reverse effect. It's but the gospel. It's the gospel. Glossing over the gospel yeah, with exactly. the law, the gospel. Well, it's time to talk about burnout, my friends. Burnout. I know Keeping we don't. Keeping it light this as, week. <laughs> as people who uh, work in ministry, we don't know anything about burnout. Um, kidding. Uh, the big, big article that was on BuzzFeed that I, I wrote about last week about how millennials became the burnout generation and Helen Peterson wrote it. It's like, it's like a novella. It's the least burned out piece of writing you can possibly find, but it is so good. And her friend, Jonathan Malazic wrote a follow-up to her saying millennials don't have a monopoly on burnout. And I think what he has to say is really, really true. And that in fact, so he says that Anne Helen Peterson gives a thorough account of how our society, especially in the past few decades, has ensured mass burnout by demanding more education, more debt, and more willingness to put work ahead of everything else. Peterson coins the term errand paralysis to describe her inability to perform the small, ordinary tasks we associate with functional adulthood. It uh, This essay went viral because it clearly resonated with young Americans, but... Perhaps it underestimated the scope of the problem. About a quarter of all U.S. workers of all ages exhibits key, exhibit key symptoms of burnout. This isn't a generational epidemic. It's a societal one. According to research psychologists, burnout has three dimensions. Emotional exhaustion, depersonalization or cynicism, and the feeling of personal inefficacy. And then uh, Peterson quotes a psychoanalyst named uh, Josh Cohen, who says, The exhaustion experienced in burnout combines an intense yearning for a state of completion with the tormenting sense that it cannot be tamed, that there is always some demand or anxiety or distraction which cannot be silenced. You feel burnout when you've exhausted all your internal resources, yet cannot free yourself of the nervous compulsion to go on regardless. Now, Peterson and Malasic himself, they say that... Individual solutions like meditation and saying no to excessive work demands, they're appealing, but they actually don't solve 
a deeper problem. Um, the Pomodoro technique will not cure your burnout, Peterson says. The Headspace app will not cure your burnout, she writes. I mean, all those things are great, but they're not actually burnout cures. They're ways to optimize your mind and body for more and better work. And this is where the problem lies, Malaysich writes. There's no obvious solution. It may be impossible to eliminate burnout altogether. As long as we toil, there will be pain. But we can surely ease it. Burnout arises in our organizations, but it's a product of the unhealthy interpersonal relations we have there. Well, you two, um, what is your experience of burnout? Is it just a generational thing? Is it a larger uh, question? Is it something that afflicts people in ministry particularly? What, what do you think about burnout and everything that both these people have said? Um, I, I mean, I think certainly burnout is something that is profound in uh, any job. In, in any sort of arena. And I don't think it's more prevalent in church work. Um, I get sort of a little irritated when people are like church works the hardest. Cause I'm like, well, I mean, unless you're like, unless you've done like concrete work outside or however that works. Like, I feel like that's not true. <laughs> you know, um, most concrete work is in fact, I don't know what even that is, but it looks harder than what I do. So I'm always like, let's cool it with the church work is harder thing. Um, but I will say I, I, what I actually jumped out at me about this stuff was this idea that we, tr we, we, we use these like apps or we read books or there's like methods and all that those do is just make it more possible for us to either take more advantage of ourselves or have the company that we're working for take more advantage of us. So thus we can just be burned out. Right. Like, and I thought about how, like, totally common that is in church world. Even like if you go to like clergy wellness stuff, sometimes there's like this big emphasis on like, well, you know, you need to take care of yourself in this way and that way and this way and that way. And it's like, so I can just prolong how hard this is or how much this sucks. You know what I mean? So yeah. that that kind of like really stuck out to me. Cause I, I think there's, I mean, we've talked a bit about self care stuff here before, but we have to be, I mean, self care is important she says slightly rolling her eyes it is important but it's it often becomes a way for us to just like be more damaged right like it just takes longer for us to get damaged or we'll just like be damaged for an extended period of time so only good news for me today <laughs> <laughs> it it made me think how desperate people are of course not me but people are for just a word of encouragement yeah a word of like good job, like way to go. Yeah. And, uh, just think that when I do, you know, for all you, um, parishioners out there, well, parishioners, anyone in, in a position of sort of quote unquote authority or, or under authority, um, that to, to say something or to send a note or is just like water in the desert, you know, that, that you can, uh, you, you can be struggling and just get an email or, or, or a note or a phone call or someone just says something and they mean it. It's specific. You know, it's not just like, you're so great, but like that thing you did was, was great. Or I'm so mm -hmm. thankful for you because of this or what, well, you know, and again, whether, whether you're a boss or, or, you know, or not, uh, that that's just so needful and that, uh, people should be perhaps a bit more 
if they get effusive with their praise, even though it's awkward to give, mm. you know, it's, it's sometimes it feels a little strange to offer a word of, uh, of encouragement. Um, in terms of feeling burned out, like, yeah, I, my wife and I talk about this all the time. Like our days seem never to end, you know, which is partially having a two year old. Um, but you know, you wake up in the morning, you make lunches, you make coffee, you get the kids off to school, you go to work, you come home, you play with your two year old, you help your teenagers with the homework, you put your baby to bed. And then usually I go to bed before my oldest son does. Cause he's still up doing homework until midnight or something. And then I get up the next day and do it all over again. Uh, so there is this relentlessness, you know, then today my wife's car wouldn't start and needs a new starter, you know? So I had to go to the garage and it's just, it does often feel like life is an endless succession of tasks that must be completed or else. Um, because like, yeah, I'm all about self-care, but oftentimes like if I'm going to do some self-care, like someone has to pay for that, you know, to some degree, like if I'm like, I need a break, you know, when my wife or I said, Hey, we need a break from the two-year-old for an hour. It means that the other one's going to, you know, he does not play by himself. He's not what right. we call an introvert. Um, <laughs> he, you know, he needs, unless we just like put him in front of YouTube for an hour, which by the way, he is a magician with the iPhone. It is crazy to watch my two-year-old navigate the YouTube menu, but then I just feel horribly guilty. And I'm like, okay, you know, the price of my uh, self-care is I'm rotting my son's brain, which is not true. Uh, Dave, anyway, Dave, Dave has no idea what I'm talking about right now. He's not resonating at all with no, what I'm saying. I, I'm feeling d deeply uncomfortable. <clears throat> yeah. But, uh, yeah, I get this. I get this. And I, I love my boys. I love my life. I love my wife, but I really like your dad. This is last week too. You know, your dad used to say like the best thing ever is like an illness that's just severe enough you can't go to work, but not so bad that you can't stay in bed and binge watch Netflix. You know, <laughs> that's what you need every so often is an excuse to just uh, veg out. And and yet um, th this week has been the, the week where a lot of people have said that there's no such thing as a sick day anymore. It's just a day of working from home. And uh, uh, the feeling of this sort of never-ending, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure other generations felt it in their own way. And, and here we are. I don't... I don't think I officially qualify as a millennial, though I'm pretty close, um, saying that this sort of overwhelming uh, pace does seem to be palpably felt by more and more people. And in fact, when I wrote this, you know, people were sort of like, well, okay, it's great to talk about and, and to label effectively, but what's the solution? Can't the church offer some sort of refuge? And Boredom. Um, I think, I, and I do, I do, I am a subscriber in the fact that talking about it and commiserating is a huge part of the solution and not mm. take, it takes a little bit of the sting out. And, and when you, when you, when you stop long enough to even think about it, that that's actually a sign of hope. Um, but there was a comment that came at the very end after someone was, was dem, dem asking for a solution in quite uh, vocal terms, um, as though we could solve this. Uh, and this is from, uh, Michael Cooper, a uh, frenemy of the website, I guess, you could, <laughs> I guess you could call him. I happen to l love his little quotes, but he, this is what he says. There are no solutions to be offered by the church or by anyone uh, or anything else, not to the real problems. Love can enter into the problem, but love does not solve the problem. That is the frustrating truth. And if the church offers solutions to problems and not naked love that solves nothing but accomplishes everything, then the church is selling a lie. Now, Ooh, he's got a way of putting me. it. Excuse <laughs> Mr. Cooper. <laughs> Hanging with Mr. Cooper. Um, sorry, I had to. Um, I, I mean, I agree. And also, like, 
I, I just hope that all the women that listen to this podcast, all four of you, I hope you all have <laughs> like, I hope you all have a Carrie Willard in your life. Cause like there, the, there are these women and I feel like I am this way for other women. Although Carrie is definitely this way for me. She will just say no. You know what I mean? Like, no, things are too crazy. We're not doing that too. Cause I think where we've landed, which is with this piece, which is fascinating is that it's not just about work, right? It's not just we're burned out at work. It's like, we're burned out period. Like everyone is burned out period. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I do think, I, I don't think this is a solutionless problem and yes, certainly love in the church and let's try that. But <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> but I do think just saying no, I mean, is like sometimes in our like fancy dancy neighborhood, there's a rectory. That's how we live there. It, where there's all this pressure for our kids to do stuff and us to keep moving and having the right car and all this stuff just to like roll in, you know, have I told you the t-shirt I wear to the bus stop? What's it say? It says Jesus loves sinners roll in with your messed up hair and your Jesus loves sinners t-shirt and your kid that's yelling at you <laughs> and be like, we hear world. Like sometimes that is like the <laughs> Christian thing to do. I am convinced and just be like, no, we're not signing up for that. Or y'all, Oh, it's a hundred day of school. We were supposed to put him in a hundred dots on his shirts. F that, you know, like sometimes that's our role. So I well, don't there know. There you go. There you go. I mean, maybe there are some things we could do. I, uh, I, I'm, I'm Nancy Reagan was right. Maybe but she, what did she say? Just say no. Okay. <laughs> like, did she say Jesus loves sinners? Cause I missed that one. I don't okay. think so. I think the Jesus okay. loves, Jesus uh, loves sinners stars, might actually signs. be the love in this situation. Yes. Um, but yeah, I know. Um, Anyway, well, speaking yeah, to of lower our standards, basically, and yes. to not care so much what people think about us. Yes. I, I, I totally I agree. I and it's I, really, but I still don't. I, it's I don't, hard to do. I don't think that that's accomplishable by willpower. I think to have a friend or a, a, no. a, who can say on your behalf or your a, 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 a spouse even that can say you're not doing that. That's too much. No, I, it's that's helpful. But I'm gonna be real with you. The other thing I do and feel free to cut this because it sounds crazy. I think about how many years I've got till I'm 80. Every time. Because I feel like 80 is optimal death age. So I'm like, how many years I got till I'm 80? And that that actually thinking that helps me discern what's important and what's not. It doesn't always work. Or or I think about coffins. These are my tips. I love it. I think that's fantastic. Well, I told you that Alex Large, right, who has the app that uh, sends him a little uh, text like five times a day being like, remember, you will die someday. I love that. <laughs> you know, and it's uh, it is very helpful in prioritizing and keeping things in perspective. Well, you're also we're also we also proclaim as you say, the good news for the who, for people who are burnt out and burnt up. Yes. I mean, I think that the gospel really speaks to those of us. The, the problem, the problem I seem to face is that people are so burnt out that the, the idea of going to church or put, put, flipping on a sermon podcast or whatever, even that seems like a, like a uh, where where they might hear something different, where they might hear some good news. Even that seems like another thing to ask of them. Thing to do. And it does. That always makes me their, sad. To their credit. Dave's all so often these people walk into these churches and what they hear is not good news. What they hear is, you know, an extension of the news cycle, mm -hmm. right? Or they hear like, this is how you need to optimize your life. And Lord Jesus knows they've got enough of that. So, I mean, I hear you, but I also get it. Like, you know, oh, I mean, de I don't, oh yeah, I'm definitely. Uh, you'd rather them go to a, 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 rather them not go to church than go to a bad church. I think yes. is especially where they're going to get more burdens heaped upon them. That's I yeah. certainly I, I think there's no question I believe that but 
I also think that I, I, I sort of want to say, hey, that we are saying something different on Sunday. For that then we, there's a message for people who are burnt out, but they're so burnt out that they don't even they don't even care, you know. That, totally. Um, but speaking it's of tough to, to get the kids dressed and looking acceptable for Sunday morning, honestly, well, that might be that <laughs> might know, be more of a, a Texas <laughs> problem than the rest of the country. But I, it is it is a problem. What about uh, Pastor? Where are you hiding? Why are you hiding? This is directed at you guys, Pastor. Why are you like hiding? <laughs> you didn't like this one. <laughs> You're a pastor, Dave. Yeah, I mean this. So, I, gosh, I hate talking about the enneagram. But I'm going to talk about the Enneagram no, you for a don't. second. You love talking I mean, about the I Enneagram. I mean, I do on the hallway in our offices, but like, I just feel like I'm such a, anyway, um, you know, my type is a three and threes are performers and the sad, they always say the saddest Enneagram type is a sad three. Cause we've like created this whole persona for ourselves, right? Mm. This whole performance. And then we don't believe that we can be loved beyond that. Or like that, like that is the only way by which we are loved. So I've been doing a, ton of really painful work around the Enneagram uh -huh. in the past probably month and and realize both that part of the reason I love Mockingbird so much is that like God you know we hear here that God has done it all and that, that you know that there's no performance to be performed mm -hmm. right and yet I entered into this organization and have like made myself do things so i you know when i read that's been sort of a you know probably too much in my head that you don't want on the podcast but that's been kind of a dark reality i face lately of like what does it mean to kind of have a persona and live into it and it not be authentic to you so this piece hit frighteningly close to home thank you sarah i think that's a i don't did nothing to cut about that this is Chuck DeGroat, who's a, a wonderful author on the West Coast. He talks about pastors who are gifted and charismatic and effective and even humble. Uh, but he says, but they're also burning cauldrons of neglected needs that manifest in sneaky and secretive behaviors, which will likely cost them their pastoral ministries and maybe their families. They're lonely and busy and empty and radically disconnected from any kind of inner conversation with their hearts and with the God who is more near to them than their very breath. And then he goes in to talk about Susan Howitch's novel, Glittering Images. This was always, this was like my parents' favorite novel of the 80s. I remember it around our house when we were kids. Um, he says, in the novel, Charles Ashworth is a conflicted Anglican priest and canon who meets with John Darrow, a spiritual director who confronts his false self, what he calls his quote unquote glittering image. That public persona he takes uh, while neglecting a deeper inner conversation. Darrow does something interesting. He speaks directly to the glittering part of Ashworth, saying, He must be exhausted. Has he never been tempted to set down the burden by telling someone about it? I can't, Ashworth replies. Whose eye? Darrow responds. The glittering image. Ah, yes, says Darrow. And of course, that's the only Charles Ashworth that the world, that the world is allowed to see. But I'm becoming interested in this other self of yours, the self nobody meets. I'd like to help him come out from behind that glittering image and set down this appalling burden, which has been tormenting him for so long. He can't come out, Ashworth responds. Darrow asks, why not? In a moment of stunning clarity, Ashworth says, you wouldn't like or approve of him. With gentleness and honesty, Darrow responds, Charles, when a traveler's staggering along with a back-breaking amount of luggage, he doesn't need someone to pat him on the head and tell him how wonderful he is. He needs someone who will offer to share the load. After 20 years of such of encounters, this is DeGroat speaking, I now assume most pastors I meet are more lost than they realize. 
Pastors have stunning rates of narcissism and porn usage, and many fear their shadow side will destroy their ministry, so they become adept at hiding. Sin and lust management strategies don't work. Self-help strategies are band-aids on soul wounds. Until we risk moving our true selves from the shadow to the light, the unaddressed dramas within will continue to wield unconscious control over us. I would only add here that I think that limiting this to pastors is um, just like limiting burnout to millennials. Is uh, um, mm-hmm. He's just writing a wonderful article here, so it, he's not trying to take on the whole world. But this is what I, when he says most people are more lost than, than they ever are even aware of, I think that this is the human race. And unfortunately, it's, it's also a description of burnout a little bit, but it's a description of life under the law. I mean, what is the glittering image if not the enoughness that you're trying to project to the world? And the amount, the exhaustion and alienation and loneliness and sin that it sort of cannot help but generate. Anyway, I was deeply touched by this as someone who works in and around uh, not just church people, but people. Um, Sarah, you've, you've talked about how, how you resonated with it. You've, what, else, what else, anything else you want to share? I mean, I'll say, so something that I've started doing that's been... Uh, helpful with kind of kind of de- I mean uh, you know dealing with some of this stuff about sort of your personality becoming the thing that people love and they don't really love you I'll say two things so the other day I was sitting in my driveway staring at my phone as I'm want to do when I don't want to deal with my life and a friend of mine from high school who I have not talked to in years called me mm. And she's, uh, she was incredibly, um, she had a big impact on my ministry. Her name's Monique. And, and part of that is that Monique growing up was so different from me religiously. She watched the 700, 700 club. Um, I remember she would save her cat because you have to say the sinner's prayer for salvation. And she, um, went to a Pentecostal church and I would go with her sometimes. She was just deeply devout and she still is. And she knows me and she called me and we talked for a while and we kind of, you know, first 10 years of marriage and how's it going and all the kind of stuff you navigate And then she said, I wanted to tell you how much I loved your book. Mm. And I don't mean to start crying again, but you know, there's an element of when people say that they really love what you do when you produce things. And especially when it's so intrinsically connected to Jesus that you can begin to think that your worth in Jesus lies in these things that you do sort of on his behalf. You know, and I'm saying that with quotes Mm. And to have somebody who knows me and loves me so much, who's known me for since we were, I think we've known each other since we were six or seven, say that was really beautiful. And I loved that. Felt like she was actually saying it to me in a way that like, I don't think I can hear most of the time. So that's happened. And the other thing I've been doing lately, which just sounds really cheesy, but um, is that I take um, five minutes every day and just sit there in silence And this, I have this weird kind of vision that has come to me that like I envision a pile of like, just a pile of kind of indiscriminate, I don't want to say garbage, but just all piled up. And these are all the sort of accomplishments, right. That I've had, especially professional ones. Like, I don't mean my kids or my husband, but I mean like the things. And then there's me and I, aside from it, and the thing that I keep trying to do when I have this time is just to remember how much God looks at me and loves me. You know what I mean? Like aside from all of the stuff. So 
that's been really helpful for me. I don't know if that'll be helpful for anyone else, but um, I do think this is a thing that people struggle with profoundly in ministry. I saw this shared all over Facebook by people from every end of the church. So I know that it resonates. I had a couple of thoughts. I mean, I do think one thing that's unique about sort of full-time Christian work, quote unquote, being a professional Christian, is that you're expected to be, I mean, right? I love that, a professional Christian. Professional Christian, is that you're expected to be moral, Mm. you know, and and sort of rightly so in a way that I'm not sure is quite the same for other professions. You know, there's a lot of professions where like, if you have an affair or you get divorced or you have a porn addiction or you, you know, whatever it might be, like that doesn't necessarily mean the end of your career. Like you can very easily just keep on doing what you were doing. Like I remember some, this is awful. I remember someone in New York saying to me, um, you know, that, that for a lot of successful, uh, people and probably men in particular, you know, if it came down to choosing between their career and their spouse, they choose their career because you could always find a new spouse, you know, <laughs> which is awful, which is awful to say. Yeah. Um, but so I think there is something unique about that, which means, of course, that's just the devil's playground, you know, that you, you, you want to, you want to hide and, and people, you know, people want you to be moral. Like I think about Paul in his writings to the church in Corinth, you know, they don't want him. They don't want Paul. They don't want someone weak. They don't want someone who's failed and been shipwrecked and beaten and spent. They want super apostles, right? They want these transcendent spiritual beings. And just to some degree, that's what, you know, people, uh, people want out of their pastors. And, and Paul has the freedom, you know, because he doesn't, he's not depending on them for, for a paycheck to, to be like, no, that's not me. Mm. You know, and, and so I'm not going to give that to you. And I, in fact, I will boast in my weaknesses and my sufferings, and I'm not going to try to pretend to be something that I'm not. Um, and so I think it's tough. I think, I think the best case scenario, you know, you can't bleed in the pulpit. You've got to, you know, you, we're all sinners, but you have to be careful about what you share with people who have been entrusted to your care. But I think every pastor needs to be probably in therapy, you know, to have someone they can be honest with. And then I think they also need to have friends that are not part of their church. Um, you know, hopefully Christian friends, but not necessarily Christian friends, but people that you can actually be honest with, and maybe even sort of hyper honest, hyper yourself, you know, um, maybe even swear a little bit more than you would normally because you don't get to swear in the rest of your life, you know, and I'm not advocating, it sounds like I'm advocating for a double life, which I'm not really, but I'm saying everyone has a, everyone needs a release valve. You know, I was just talking with my two-year-old preschool teacher recently, and and my son, my two-year-old has his preschool teachers convinced that he's like the sweetest, nicest, quietest, easiest kid in the world. And I was like, yeah, at school he is, (laughs) you know? Because because no one can be good all the time. You're either going to be an angel at school and a terror at home or vice versa. Or kind of like if you're really integrated, you can be sort of, you know, mildly good in both places. But both my first and my third were amazing at school and they get in the car and they fall apart um, because they've tried so hard to keep it together, you know, for those few hours. So I think everyone needs and maybe, you know, maybe especially pastors who, who are who are trying to be so moral all the time. You need a release valve. You need someone to be honest with, like really honest with, um, and someone you, you can trust who can share your secrets with and bring things into the light, live in the light mm-hmm. so that the, um, the devil won't just have his way with you, the accuser, mm-hmm. you know, which I just, I, one thing I learned from Elaine Pagels, um, I guess uh, Satan means the, means the accuser. I'm sure you guys knew that, but I didn't, but that's his job, right? To tell you um, you're nothing, you're, you're mm-hmm. terrible. How could anyone ever love you? You know, you have nothing to say. You're not worth anything. Um, and you need uh, you need some sort of embodiment of grace in your life. Mm. 
I love it. That's I think everybody just needs a bus stop they can cuss at. You know what I mean? Like just you <laughs> ordained you and a bunch of like moms who go to first press and you just like let it rip. I mean, not in front of the kids, <laughs> but as soon as the kids get on the bus, you're like, what the, you know, that's your it. Well, talk about freedom. embodied grace. I, I was thinking there's this last article that we won't even talk about, but it was about all about uh, musicians who've gotten sober and they interview Steven Tyler and they interview uh, Joe Walsh and they interview Julian Baker, who's sort of a, she's the youngest by far this crowd, but um, they keep talking about how um, the sort of embodied, well, Julian has this amazing picture of, of getting sober and her, the embodied grace that she's found. She says, uh, she's a sort of the only one among them that's sort of an outspoken Christian, though. By the way, the, I'm not a big, the biggest world's biggest fish fan, but with the stuff that Trey Anastasio says in this article is worth reading. Uh, full stop. It's it's wonderful. It's nothing but like the thing that was the worst thing was actually the best thing. It's pretty yeah. fantastic. Mm. And I know there there are a lot of fish fans out there. Uh, but this is what Julian Baker says. She says, I think that faith and sobriety coincided for me because the people who were around me in my life when I was at my very worst were not manipulating me with guilt or throwing punitive scripture at me. They were showing me gentleness, patience, and mercy that I hadn't really done anything to deserve, at least in my mind. Connection to a community is a deep human need, one that I think becomes even more important when in recovery. People find that in lots of ways, in AA or support groups or music scenes or friend groups. To me, I think all of these are what Christianity would call the body. People with different strengths and weaknesses that shoulder each other's burdens and give a little of themselves in service to one another so that they can reap the shared benefit and comfort. I thought that was a beautiful picture as we continue on into our weeks. Any, any closing thoughts, guys? We're not going to do a Super Bowl preview. We're not doing so great. Brady, 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 Brady. No, no, Brady. Here's here's, here's my impression of the Super Bowl previews. Brady, 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 Brady. I just want to know, how are all these people going to like eat Super Bowl food who are not eating carbohydrates? If I see one more damn person post about the keto diet or the Whole30 diet or the nominating carbohydrate diet... And I, I just like, I'm just glad, I'm glad for them because the flavored pork rinds are like heaven. And that's not a thing that would have happened without these weird diets, but I will be having my flavored pork rinds with a carbohydrate for, that's all I know I'm doing. So I, uh, on that note, um, <laughs> uh, talk to you guys in a couple of weeks. All right. God bye. bless. Talk to you soon. Bye. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.mbird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at mbird.com. Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by the Narrativo Group. And if you like what you've heard, please do drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Until next time. Until next time.